Welcome. 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 You're listening to Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Built by Us. Hi, um, I'm a rising junior at UNC Asheville and my major is sociology. Hey, my name's Sydney. I actually study political science at UNC Asheville. Today we have with us Dr. Mullen, a former UNCA professor, and I'm going to let him introduce himself. Hi, I'm Dwight Mullen, and I have been granted the status of Professor Emeritus. My disciplinary base is political science and Africana studies while at UNCA. My interest has ranged through just about every level that you can think of, participant in women's studies, humanities, masters of liberal arts, first year experience programs, and I miss it. I miss teaching students. Mm. Mm-hmm. Teaching was really difficult. When I came here, there was one Black faculty on the, in the entire campus. There were Klan members on campus. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I remember going out to the, my car and leaflets had been put on every windshield of the campus by the Ku Klux Klan. But where I always got the relief was the classroom. You, you couldn't beat the classroom. Could you elaborate a little bit more on that? Yeah, yeah. When I came here in 1984, 84, 85 school year, first semester, I'm looking up, and you know, and I'm saying, well, I'm not going to stay here anyway, so I'm, I'm out. Let me do what I want to in the class. So I walked in and said, you know, this place is a racist place. It's a racist institution. And I explained what I meant by that because Jim Crow had come down from the signs, but their behavior continued to reflect that. And so they were bringing Black students in and nobody was graduating. People were very unhappy. They had to be forced to hire Black faculty. It was just all the signs of, well, if this is Mississippi, nobody would be surprised, okay? So I walked into class and explained, because of that, we're going to do reparations. I told them that all the Black students in my class get an automatic A. They have to prove to me they don't deserve an A. Okay, if they don't take any tests, they don't come to class, they don't read stuff, then they've proved to me. But right now, I'm assuming they got an A. Rest of y'all assume that you ain't going to make it. And that was the first day of class. So the second, the second time I came to class, I swear to you, I had black students lined up against the wall who had added it during drop-ad period. <laughs> and a third of my white students had dropped out. <laughs> Did you get any pushback from, like, faculty or staff or any part of the administration because of that? Um, Most of the faculty uh, just left me alone. It was more subtle things that would happen. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, I didn't realize that, you know, that it was so dangerous, physically dangerous on campus. I just didn't realize it. I kept being scheduled for night classes, and I had no curtains on my office windows. So here I am in my office with the light on. And it dawned on me what was going on when the Black students started walking me to my car at night after class. I would just look up and there'd be like two or three students and, you know, just chitting. I'd just say, hey, Doc, what's going on? They're chatting and walking me out to my car. And it happened every time I had a night class, I'd get walked to my car. It was stuff like that. <laughs> Do you think that the, the solidarity and connection that you made with the students, specifically the Black students on campus, is part of why you stayed? Yeah, in 87, 88, their undergraduate research program did one of their first African-American scholars, full ride tuition kind of thing. And in her senior year, she and another political science major came to my office and said that they were going to tie themselves to the flag posts during commencement. 
to protest what was going on to black people at USCA. <laughs> and I said, I don't think your mama's gonna like that. I just, I just, I, I just you know, they gonna come after me, okay? Cause they don't think I told you to do this. So you are not gonna tie yourself to the flagpole. That just ain't gonna happen. But they really broke down and, you know, we started as a result of that, the fall after they graduated, um, a course called the African-American Colloquium. Can you tell me more about that subject? What we did is that we, we told the students when they came to campus that this was a required course for them, that they had to do this. You didn't have a choice. So all the Black students were in the same physical place with all of the Black faculty. The first time we did it, we taught them, um, we used classic Black texts that they would have found if they had gone to HBCU. We used Miseducation of the Negro by Carter G. Woodson. We didn't realize that these kids knew nothing. They knew nothing. And so we had to start from the beginning about the purposes of liberal arts education and what that might translate into being Black. Most of them, 90% of them, had never studied enslavement. They did not know. They knew about that something happened, but the details and how that actually worked and, uh, and transmitted and affected and explained what was happening to them at UNCA was like lighting a fuse, you know. And from that point on, our relationships with Black students uh, uh, prevailed. I mean, it, it, it has made the difference. Those two Black students was the tip of the iceberg because they continued for another 13 years. Did you ever discuss voting and uh, yep. voter suppression and, and things of that nature and how that ties yeah. their yep. lives today? Um, in terms of voting, when Obama was elected, we had stopped the colloquium, but what overlapped the colloquium was the census of 2010. One of the things you don't realize about the census is that it determines the size and the, and the shapes of the congressional districts. It's incredibly important because what was done for Black people in North Carolina was called cracking and packing. You jam people all in the same district so that they're limited in terms of the representatives they might have, or you divide them up into separate districts and their, their presence is diluted and their representation does not have any effect on who actually goes into Washington. That kind of gerrymandering took place as a result of 2010 census. And here in Asheville, it was particularly noted. Those kinds of things are fueled when you have an urban trend like gentrification. Mm, mm -hmm. When you have cracking and planking and you draw those district lines along race and you've gentrified, it's much easier to dilute the Black presence because in areas that historically had been Black are no longer Black. The census justifies the drawing of a line that makes it officially not Black anymore. You're talking about the number of places where you can actually go vote were dramatically reduced. A black elementary school, for example, used to be a polling place or the, the fellowship hall of the Black church, and suddenly they disappear. And people literally don't know where to go because it's not looking familiar anymore. And as a result of it, empirically can be demonstrated to lower turnout. And I'm sure you've probably heard about what's going on with the Grant Center, which is currently in Buncombe County, has the largest African-American vote. And recently the Board of Elections did not recommend that as a polling place. And that's part of the efforts we're doing is to ensure that stays a polling place because they're saying, well, only two people an hour come and vote. And we're saying, 
well, those people are black. And, and you see what exacerbates it is that when you gentrify, the poll workers don't even look like you anymore. They're disenfranchised at every level. And yeah, and, and they're trying to take away the last polling. You place. have to go in and, and tell them your name when really it used to be you go in and it's it, people having a conversation, you know, with polling workers, you know, because you're neighbors. <laughs> but not anymore. Not anymore. We're advocating with the Board of Elections um, to get that to say. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's really frustrating because often it's the first time people have voted, you know, and to make it difficult like that creates a scenario that puts a bad pe taste in people's mouths in terms of going back again. It's hard to tell people to go out and vote in the midst of COVID-19, police brutality, and being unemployed is really hard to talk about doing one more thing. But getting people out to vote this time is particularly important because it could change the course for the next 10, 20 years. And now you talk about gentrification. I live in Kenilworth. And um, when I moved to Kenilworth, it was a very eclectic community. I mean, um, socioeconomically, racially, um, even by age. It was just really an interesting community to live in. And it still is. But um, for as far as I know, as far as I, well, my walking radius of my house, we are the only black family. This is it. Ain't nobody black in Kenilworth. <laughs> you have to cross Kenilworth Road and go into Black Kenilworth before you see black people. Black Kenilworth is over by the cemetery, Kenilworth Park. That area was Black Kenilworth it was when, during segregation. The side of Kenilworth I live on, black people only worked. You went home across the street. And, but you take a walk now, there's nothing but white folk. <laughs> nothing but white folk. <laughs> I'm just waiting to be stopped. I'm waiting. So, is this depressing? I'm sorry. I shouldn't be. <laughs> Do not apologize. No. <laughs> the truth. This is your experience. I think it's important that people hear this because white people don't. We, I don't know what it's like. I'm not black. And I think that it's important. It's really important to try to empathize. I have gotten into the habit of walking my dog after it gets dark at dusk. Um, um, and the reason why is that I, uh, you know, walking my dog in this neighborhood may or may not be okay. I'm not willing to, to confront my neighbors. Um, yet. Um, I'm just not feeling that. But I'm going to stop that. I'm going to start taking her out twice a day and um, see what happens. But that's the, that's the kind of thing gentrification brings, is that people who know me in the neighborhood, they know me as a professor at UNCA. You know, people call me by name, and I don't even know who they are. But because of the pace of gentrification, we have a number of folk moving in the neighborhood who don't know me at all. You've never seen my kids. And walking my dog, you see dogs poop <laughs> and dogs pee when you walk. And people can actually call the police on you, you know, in my yard, you know, um, wearing a hoodie, you know, in the fall. That's something I really have to think about. I really have to think about which, which one I'm, I'm doing. My sons in Atlanta carry a white towel they jog. So I'm thinking maybe of doing the same thing when I walk. It's just figuring out something. I may start walking with a cane when people feel sorry for me or something. So. <laughs>
Got a white beard. <laughs> That's not funny. I'm sorry. So I just want to ask, what are some solutions for that? What can we do, especially for me, like students? What can we do coming into the fall semester to ensure that everyone has a voice, especially uh, in those communities? I've just got to a point of saying, in this moment, we have decided to take a serious and critical look at police regarding their brutality. We are not looking just at education. We're not just looking at another program designed to socialize us into a better place. We're, we're beginning to see that there are problems fundamentally to the, with people who are participating hands-on on a daily basis. It's not just police. The reasons why the state of Black Asheville and the disparities exist in every public policy area, housing, education, healthcare, economic development, employment, the reason why those disparities exist is not just because we haven't figured out how to do it better. They exist because we have people like those policemen who are choking folk to death. I mean, there, there are teachers who are jacking our students around. That's just all there is to it. And they're never held accountable for that. I can point to you doctor's offices that if you had the credibility, you can go into the community and they will tell you which physician's offices to ignore. They'll tell you what doctors and dentists you can trust to go to. You know, the same thing with housing. I came to Asheville experiencing all kinds of discrimination in housing. Nobody held those realtors to count, you know, showing up and all of a sudden the property is no longer rentable. Come on. The banks, you can look at their data and see that there are single digits. I'm talking fewer than 10 black people getting mortgages from some of these banks in a year. In a year. This is a housing boom, gentrification, et cetera, et cetera. And they are financing no black people to take part in that unless you're selling. I can talk to you about the courts and the highly discriminatory presence of arrests detention, conviction, incarceration, daily basis. And so my response to what you can do is just pick an area. <laughs> just pick an area. And I promise you, the more you dig into the data and the highly discriminatory outcomes that there are, that is in the data, the more specific your actions become obvious of what needs to, what needs to happen. As a student, I can tell you, if you dig deeper, it becomes pretty obvious where, where your interests are and what your strengths are and what you can do. Connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at DemocracyNC. Or you can visit our website at democracync.org.